Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. My family and I have been attending Beacon for a few years, and we love how the pastors reason through the scriptures every Sunday. We love the fellowship, the kids' classes, the singing, and oh, the cafe is great. So if you're in the neighborhood, we'd love to meet you. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 10.30, or 12 noon. We're located at 65 East Williston Avenue in East Williston, New York. For more information, visit us at visitbeacon.com. See you soon. Well, we are so glad to have you with us this morning. We are in our second week of the Training Wheels series. And, uh, you know, we have kind of this illustration that we're talking about how we want to be people of faith who are learning to ride our bike fully, not simply riding it with training wheels. We're in the book of Hebrews. The reason we're in the book of Hebrews is because it's part of our Own It reading series. How many of you are doing Own It? Yeah, still like about half of us. Own It is a year-long initiative that we've been participating in as a church where we come together as a church. We all read the same passage in the Bible every day. In this case, it's from the New Testament. We all read that same chapter. And then we send out a couple of resources every week so that we can all kind of be growing in this. And by the end of the year, we will have read and studied the entire New Testament, which is very cool. Now, if you're not doing Own It, that's fine. I'm not really sure why, but if you're not, you know, everyone should have some sort of plan for your personal growth, a plan for how you're going to be studying God's word, for how you're going to be growing in the faith. And so if you don't have a plan, I would encourage you to jump right in with Own It. You can jump in at any time. We, we're still sending out resources all the way through the end of the year. And next year, we won't be doing the same Own It campaign, but we'll be doing another church-wide kind of growth plan initiative that you're going to want to plug in with as well. So as we look at the book of Hebrews, which is kind of a unique book, I want to just take a couple of minutes here and watch this tutorial about the book of Hebrews and what it's about. Check it out. Jesus as superior to anyone or anything else. 
showing them that Jesus is worthy of all of their trust and devotion. But his second goal is this, it's to challenge the readers to remain faithful to Jesus despite persecution. So in every section, he includes a strong warning not to abandon So that's the book we're in. It's actually the first two minutes of an eight-minute video that's really good. We're going to send it out tomorrow to all of the Own It um, readers, so you'll be getting the rest of that. So when you get it, make sure you watch it because the rest of it's very cool. I would say for today, I want to really grab onto the understanding that the book of Hebrews was written to people who already knew the story of God's people. They already knew what God had done for their community. They already had a, a personal and a knowledge of Jesus and what he had done in this world as well, which is why it's a great book for this training wheel series because it's talking about kind of extending and going to the next step. And you can see even here how our series has laid out. We've lined up with these same two goals as the book. The first goal was to elevate Jesus as superior. So if you were here last week, you know that was the entire point of last week's service. We talked about Jesus is better, not simply better than the fulfillment of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, but Jesus is also better than everything we face here in this world, and he deserves that ultimate place of priority in our life. In fact, we had a, a time of response where people could respond and say, you know, I've never really officially committed my life to following Christ. I've never officially declared that Jesus is better. And we had a number of people uh, walk forward into that last week, which is very exciting. Now today and the following weeks, we're starting to pick up this next main goal, the challenge that we have to remain faithful. So last week we talked about atonement. That was kind of our theological concept of the morning. You probably have it in your notes. That atonement that Jesus was given on our behalf he received the punishment for our sin. Now all can be made right between us and God because of that atonement. To use our bike metaphor, you could think about last week as the establishment that there is a bike. This bike is the only way to go to heaven. You cannot make your own bike. You are not a bike maker. You have to accept the bike that's been given to you by God, which sounds restrictive because this bike is the only way to heaven, except that anyone who submits to following Christ, who chooses to be a follower of Christ, anyone can receive this bike, not this actual bike. I need to take it home at some point. But you can receive the bike, the way to heaven. It's open to everyone through the atonement of Christ. So what we're going to talk about today is how we can really ride this bike fully, how we can fully embrace that life that he has for us. That's this remaining faithful element. Now, the book of Hebrews talked about literal persecution, even from the government. We don't have that same uh, enemy that we're facing today, but we still face a lot of difficulties in pursuing the Christian walk, and that's what we're going to talk about. So turn to Hebrews 5, if you could. And we're going to keep coming back to Hebrews. We'll be in 5, and then eventually we'll be in 6. So don't close it up after we read it once. Don't close out your app. Stay with me. We're going to talk about Hebrews 5, and then a good part of Hebrews 6 as well. I said this before in almost every series we've done this year. And a shame, it's, it's, it's almost a shame to cover the book of Hebrews in like three weeks because I think you could study it for months and get so much out of it. But we're just going to take kind of a narrow slice today, dig into that a little bit, and then kind of equip you for further study into Hebrews. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 5, I just want to remind you, you know, we're talking about taking the training wheels off of the bike. But... We have a lot of people in our community here at Beacon who actually are brand new to the faith. They are brand new to following Christ, and that is tremendous. That is fantastic. In some ways, it's the most exciting part of your spiritual journey. When you're first reading some of these things in the Bible, you're first talking with friends, and you're thinking, wow, I never knew that this was the truth about God. So if you're in that phase, 
training wheels are fine. No one ever thinks it's funny to learn how to ride a bike with training wheels. When you kind of go sideways is when you're an adult and you still have the training wheels. I know you can't really see it, but this is a fairly decent racing bike that we outfitted with training wheels. So if I were to show up at a race with this bike, they would laugh me out of the race. Because I have training wheels. Not to mention I would never be able to compete because if I still needed training wheels, I would actually be a terrible rider. Not that I'm a great rider. We have a bunch of better riders here in the church. But, you know, if we still had the training wheels on, it would just be silly. That's really the audience that the writer is talking to. So let's start in verse 12. The author of Hebrews says, Though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquired with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So this writer, he, he draws his own picture. He decides not to do the picture of training wheels. He goes in a different route, a little bit more controversial. He's talking about milk versus solid food. Okay? There's only one kind of milk that he's talking about here. He's not talking about formula. He's not talking about you're still drinking cow's milk or goat milk. He's saying you should be adults, but you're still nursing babies, which is obviously weird, okay? I don't know what your opinion is about nursing, but there is a point when it should stop. Can we all agree on that? <laughs> right? Like there's a point that it gets a little awkward. That's when the nursing should stop. And that's what the writer's talking about. So when we were designing this series, really this passage was a big part of it. So we were talking about what visuals we might be able to bring to you as the church to talk about when it's time to stop nursing. And so, you know, Robert had his ideas of sort of two big dominant images we could put on the ceiling that were like fully inappropriate. And so I told him there's no possible way. And Trevor had some ideas for calling this series, you know, don't be a, you know, don't be certain things and all of this. We're like, no, no, no. We, so we landed on the training wheels because it's a little bit more G-rated, okay? But the author of Hebrews, he kind of went for it. He says, you're adults and you're still nursing and that is weird. Chapter 6, therefore... Let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God and instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. God permitting, we will do so. We'll stop there. The writer is saying, listen, we don't want to have to lay the foundation again. Different metaphor, but still powerful. It's talking about, you know, imagine you've built a building, whether it's a house, whether it's a skyscraper, whatever it is. And if you have to rebuild the foundation, something terrible has happened. There's been some sort of cataclysmic failure. Either the building fell down, or maybe there was a storm that wiped it out. There was some other sort of event, or maybe it was just determined to be completely unfit for people to be inside. So if you have to rebuild a foundation, that is a huge problem. And we can all easily see rebuilding the foundation is so much worse than having built it right the first time. You know, this is kind of a measure twice, cut once type of lesson. If you are rebuilding, relaying the foundation, this is a very bad thing. And so you want to build the foundation right 
but then move on. And then the writer laid out the six elementary teachings, and he just rattles them off in like two verses. It's a very impressive list, but as we dive into it, we'll see these really are kind of the, the fundamental teachings of being a Christian. The first one he said is repentance from acts that leads to death. What acts lead to death? Sin. Sin is what leads to death. So you need to repent. Repent means saying and feeling sorry, but it's not simply regret and remorse. It's also a turning. To repent means you've turned away from sin. Turn towards what? Well, that's number two, faith in God. These are a pair. Saying repent from sin, turn to faith in God. Then he goes a little bit further, and he says you need to understand cleansing rites. Cleansing rites is actually baptism. It's, uh, it's not as clear in the NIV. I love the NIV. It's my favorite translation by far. But here it's a little bit confusing. The actual word in the Greek is baptismon, which I know sounds Jamaican, but it's not like baptismon, you know, but that's what it says. And the translations aren't really sure what to do with this word because even though baptism is like the most common word in the world today, this particular Greek word is a little bit unusual. So our NIV said these are cleansing rites, which was kind of an Old Testament tradition. Several versions, like the King James, the NLT, the NET, they went with baptisms, plural, which I think in English we don't do plural anymore with baptism. Then NASB, ESV, which are, are more literal, they went with washings. And if you have the newest NIV, there's probably even a footnote that says cleansing rites or baptism. So there's sort of, this cleansing rites thing is unique, and I see what they're saying because the cleansing rites of the Old Testament really became baptism, but for us, we can really just think of it as being baptized. The point where there's a physical representation of being dead to sin, being made alive in Christ. Force when they said the laying on of hands, that is an illustration talking about prayer. And it's long been a tradition of God's people to lay hands on someone while you are praying for them. Usually you do laying hands prayer in kind of two common situations. The most common is when someone is sick. You would, if there's a prayer for healing, you would often lay hands on them. So when we do Vespers, if someone comes up and they ask for a prayer of healing, we usually lay hands on them in some way that they're comfortable with, you know, and we just pray for them and ask that they would be healed. It's also common to lay on hands when you're sending someone out for ministry or when you're kind of anointing or confirming their call into ministry. So like if we brought on a new pastor here at the church, we would bring him or her up. We would pray for them with the laying on of hands. And so when he says the laying on of hands, he's just talking about prayer. The fifth one he mentions is resurrection, the resurrection of the dead, understanding that there's more than just this life. You live in this world once and then you die. It says in Hebrews 9, it is appointed to each man but once to die and then to face judgment. So you don't come back. You don't live here more than once. You live here only once. Then you die and you are resurrected from the dead into six, eternal life, one way or the other. And so this is the point of judgment, that what we have done on this earth, we will be held accountable for our sins unless we are covered under the covering of the atonement of Christ. These are the six elementary teachings as defined in Hebrews, and I actually believe that they're in order. I think they make perfect sense. First, you repeat from sin, you turn to faith in God, you become baptized, you start a life of prayer, and then as you continue to grow, at the end of your life you die, and you have eternal judgment and eternal life with Christ. He says this is the foundation I don't want to keep laying this foundation over and over. Furthermore, especially when you're talking about Hebrews, all of these concepts extend deep into the Old Testament, all six. Now, the, the life and death and the resurrection of Christ reinformed all of them and pointed all of them towards himself, towards himself, towards the Son, but all of them are very old concepts they already know. 
And the writer is saying, we don't want to keep relaying this foundation, which sounds great. I love it. Then he goes into verse 4. It's kind of a subject change. He says, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away, to be brought back into repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. What is he talking about? So we just had the elementary teachings of Christ, which are like, they're like a warm blanket. You talk about these six things, and you're like, this is wonderful. This is the faith that I know and love. This is what I've embraced. And then, boom, here's the people who can never be saved. In fact, they're going to be burned. What? Seems a little scattered. What he's doing is he's starting to talk about those who laid the foundation and then let it go. Those who have not stayed true into this faith. And what it's talking about theologically is a concept called apostasy. This isn't something we've talked about a lot, but I think we're just going to unpack it for a few minutes and you can start to think about it. Apostasy defined is defection from the faith, an act of unpardonable rebellion against God and his truth. So apostasy means that you have turned away from God, you have fully committed to being apart from him. Hebrews talks about this several times. It kind of cycles through. In fact, it was earlier in Hebrews chapter 3. In verse 12, it was said this way, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original conviction firmly to the end. So when we hit this Hebrews 3 passage a few days ago, we sent out a great little video that talks about this exact concept and kind of unpacked this passage word for word, talking about what does it mean to be someone who believes in Christ and then turns away? That is apostasy. And so apostasy really requires two things. First is it does require knowledge of the things of God. You have to have heard the message of God and you have to have understood it. You say, what about those who have never heard? That is a great question. That's just not what we're talking about today, okay? That's not apostasy. To be apostate means you have knowledge of God, yet, number two, you have a full commitment to rejection. You have heard, you have known the message, and you have willfully turned away. You've shown a commitment to that rejection. Hebrews chapter 10, I told you it comes back in cycles. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Raging fire. Someone who knows and yet is actively rejecting the things of God. The scriptures are saying there's no forgiveness for them. Second Peter has another image that I think you might love. It says, if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. 
It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. Isn't that lovely? How's your bagel? And this was a concept that the audience would have been familiar with because if you study the Old Testament code of sacrifices, which we don't have time to do, Numbers 14 and 15 especially draws this distinction between certain types of sins. It talks about sins that were committed accidentally or inadvertently or through some sort of neglect and sins that were committed defiantly. In fact, the word for defiant sins in the Hebrew literally translates to sins of the high hand. And to sin with a high hand means that you're standing and you're shaking your fist at God saying, I'm doing it my way and there's no other way. That's what apostasy is. You say, why is that unforgivable? Because that's what scares me. There's, we just hit something in the Bible that said there is a sin that's unforgivable. That, that scares me a lot. This is why, remember, it requires a commitment to rejection from God. So the Bible has said there is only one way to heaven. There is only one way to see atonement. If a person is actively, willfully rejecting that way, there's no forgiveness left because there's nowhere else to find it. You have turned away from the only type of forgiveness that there is. Now, some people say, are you saying that a person can be fully of faith and then fully leave their faith behind? Well, there's really two different schools of thought on this. I'm going to give you both. I know, way to take a stand. Um, the first one is this, and it's the video we sent out. The first one says, if a person was of faith and then they walked away, they never really came to faith. It never really was a part of their life. You know, when Jesus talked about what it was like to come to faith, he said, you have to be born again. So if a person was reborn, they can't be unreborn because that's not even a word. You know, and so if you've been reborn, if you've been made new in Christ, you're permanently changed. And so if a person is able to walk away from that, then they never really embraced faith. And that's because it's anchored in something that Jesus did and not something that we did. And since Jesus' act can never be undone, then you can never walk away from your faith. You must have never really had faith to begin with. That is the most common way to understand it. I understand it. I respect it. I probably lean that way a little bit myself. The other way people will tell you is, no, 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 you can be fully committed to your faith, then you can fully walk away. And if you would have died on this earth in the believing phase of your life, you would spend eternity with Christ. If you died on this earth in the unbelieving phase of your life, then you would not spend eternity with Christ. But here's where I am going to go out on a limb. I don't believe the difference between these two really matters. Here's why. They end in the same place. How do you conduct your spiritual life differently, armed with knowing that people who have walked away from the faith may or may not have been in at one point? You don't. You do nothing differently. You continue to reach out. You continue to love. If it's you, if you've walked away from the faith, you should continue to question. You should continue to, to consider not being in rebellion. That's why I'm not sure that it matters. And so it might be some certain types of people love to sit around and debate. I respect that. But it ends up in the same place because the person who is in apostasy is now far from God. And is there no forgiveness for them? Is God permanently done with them? Here I'll say... 
This is why. Apostasy requires a commitment to ongoing rejection. Therefore, if you repent of apostasy and turn back to God, I see no indications in the scripture that he won't forgive you for that rebellion, cleanse you of unrighteousness, and call you to himself. Because if you're no longer in active rejection, you're no longer in apostasy. It's like, you know, you can sort of walk back up this road because atonement is still the only way to find faith in Christ. Does that make sense? I hope so because I don't want to keep talking about it. So that's, that's kind of the practical aspect of understanding this faith. And I believe the reason he's talking about apostasy here and now is this. He sort of went to the negative for a minute to talk about what it doesn't look like to be a person of faith. And if you state it positively, I believe you could say it this way. The only proof of genuine faith is persistence in the faith. That's why there was this quick little parable of the soils in our passage where he said, you know, some soil gets rained on and produces fruit. Some soil gets rained on, it doesn't produce fruit. Are you producing fruit? Are you showing persistence in the faith. Look at verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continued to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. He's saying the only way to know that your faith is real, the only way to, to grow in your faith is to remain committed. And I think it's obvious. You know, if you think through, you know, if you at some point in your life had a commitment to fitness, at some point you were eating healthy, you were exercising, you had good sleep habits, and now you don't eat right, you don't exercise, and you don't have good health and sleep habits, are you healthy now? No, the only way to stay healthy is to remain committed to that path. If you are married, and at one point in your marriage, you were committed to your spouse, at one point in your marriage, you were faithful, at one point in your marriage, you invested the time necessary into having a good marriage, and now you don't, do you have a good marriage now? Are you even married now? Probably not. Because the only way to see either of those through, your health, your marriage, is to remain committed. And I believe that's exactly what this writer is saying about our faith. The only way to see through a life of faith is through this persistence in the faith. And so the writer gave us just four quick examples of what persistence looks like. And, and they're so clear, they just leap off the page. He said in verse 10, you have to work. So it's not easy. You have to be engaged in it. You have to be diligent to the very end. You can't be diligent for a while. Don't become lazy, which is all part of this, and show faith and patience. But I believe it can get even more practical than this. We talked about this a little bit during our Pokemon series. If you're a guest, yes, I just said Pokemon series. We did a series kind of based on Pokemon. And as we talked about the fruit of the Spirit, one theme that we touched on a little bit from time to time is if you're praying for God to show you the fruit of Spirit in your life, you start to, to be more precise about what you're actually praying for and who you're asking to change. For example, one of the fruits of the Spirit is patience. If you're praying for patience, are you asking God to make you more patient? 
Or are you asking God to remove from you the situations that make you feel impatient? It's very different. Or let's say you're praying for the sin of lust. You know, you want God to give you a goodness morally. So are you praying that God would change you so that you no longer struggle with lust? Or are you praying that God would no longer put attractive people in your life or put moments in your life that make you struggle with lust? Think about it. Because it's two different prayers. And I mess this up all the time because there's two ways you can pray. One is, God, I want you to make this easier. I'm in a struggle right now and it's too much for me. I need you to make it easier. Take away this environment from me that's causing me to stumble. The other way to pray is to say, God, make me stronger. And what happens is when you're praying for God to make it easier, we've missed one of the fundamental teachings of the Bible, is that we should expect trouble. Trouble is coming. The Christian life isn't easy. There will be challenges. If we remove the challenges, we remove the opportunities to grow. So when you're thinking about the bike, I don't want us to pray that it would be easier to balance. I want us to pray that he would give us the strength to ride on and ride faster. When you're teaching a kid to ride, what's the most common mistake? They go too slow, right? They stop. This is why you have to fake them out. You have to be pushing. You have to promise that your hand is still there. Then you have to take your hand away and swear that it's still there because they need to keep moving. Because we know that to balance requires motion. And so to pray for motion is to be asking God to make us stronger, not to make it easier. If you're praying to make it easier, you're really just asking for bigger, stronger training wheels. So, you know, if I had stronger training wheels, I would never fall down. But instead, we want to pray for him to make us stronger. And so this morning, as part of our service, we're going to have an opportunity to respond in worship together. I'd invite the band to come back up. They're going to get ready. And as we worship you know, the reason that we worship is because it gives each of us a personal opportunity to respond for how God has been speaking into our hearts. And so as we're crying out to him, I, I, our prayer is that God would make us stronger because it's when he makes us stronger that we can begin to pursue the things of faith that are more difficult. When he makes us stronger, that's when we can begin to step out in faith into those places that he's called us to. Because if he simply makes it easier... We never actually grow. Does that make sense? And so if we're always praying for it to get easier, then we're turning away from the opportunities to grow. We're turning away from those moments when we can take those training wheels off, when we can show true and genuine persistence in the faith. So I'd invite you, why don't you stand, and as we worship, this is really the focus of this time. As we ask God to make us stronger, as we ask God to, to empower us and give us the courage and strength that we need to pursue him.